This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man, listen, we got to talk about you. How are you doing? You just been through a hurricane, bro. (laughs) Yeah, man. So for those who do not know, uh, I just spent the past week going through, well, actually preparing for, going through, and then recovering from Hurricane Sally. And I have to tell you, God has been so kind to us. We are blessed as a family. We were without power for only a couple of days when we expected about 14 days. Um, which is a blessing that was our last direct hit, which was ironically 16 years ago to the day. September 16, 2004 was Hurricane Ivan, and September 16, 2020 is Hurricane Sally. And so if you've never been in a hurricane, it's hard to describe it to you, hard to describe the level of anxiety they produce, the worry, the fear, the emotions, the concern, and also the way you kind of hold your breath for however long it takes. And what was interesting about Hurricane Sally um, is normally storms will kind of pass through quickly or pass through at a steady clip. And what made Hurricane Sally so devastating as a Category 2, almost a Category 3 storm, is that it was only moving two miles per hour. Mm. So if you think about that, a massive storm of 110 mile an hour max winds moving two miles an hour, just beating the coast and dumping over 30 to 40 inches of rain in a set area, uh, that's a recipe for devastation and disaster. When I finally got out of the house a couple of days after the storm and was able to drive around, I I teared up and my breath was kind of taken away. I was not expecting to see the level of devastation, the level of um, harm that had been done to our community. And of course, as we know, someone has aptly said that when White America catches a cold. Black America catches pneumonia. Right. And as white America and as the suburban parts, which frankly uh, I'm I live in, those better off, well off parts of the city experience devastation. You can only imagine the level to which the black community and historic black neighborhoods in our city experience that higher level of devastation. And so one community I want you to keep in your prayers. And if we find out a way to create something that we can you know, give to, or you can sow into, we'll share that with you. But it's a community called Wedgwood. And it's a historic African-American community that the Washington Post did a story on that because of the fact that most of us were not prepared for Hurricane Sally. And you have to understand we're, we're old hats when it comes to hurricanes. We've been through a number of them. I myself have been through probably six or seven hurricanes, but we were not expecting this one. We were expecting tropical storm and then perhaps 
maybe the side swipe of a hurricane, but then we got a direct hit. And because of that, whenever there is a shift in the direction and a shift in the trajectory, the more impoverished, under-resourced communities are hit the hardest. And so this community, Wedgwood, the Washington Post talked about how hard it was hit, and it's even worse than what the news article describes. So keep Wedgwood and the city of Pensacola in your prayers. Uh, there are a lot of people who are still recovering and affected. While we have power and while our lives are quote unquote getting back to normal, whatever that looks like in a pandemic, uh, many people are still struggling. There was a story today in our local news of a local apartment complex uh, filled with elderly and people who are closer to poverty it was completely decimated. And because of that, they are actually all being evicted on three days notice. So they're all being evicted. So now lawyers are stepping in and people are trying to figure out what to do um, to help the people who are going to be displaced as a result of the cruel and callous uh, policy um, of their landlord, which I'm, I'm pretty sure is illegal. And so they're working through that now. But The reality is they still have to find a place to go in the short term, um, even if they are not evicted. So, so much to pray for and so many compounding problems. We still have a boil notice on our water. So we still have to use um, bottled water or boil our water. Um, There's going to be much devastation and much repair in specific places and parts of the community that affect our children, that affect our elderly. It's just so much. Um, and so we we spent about 10 years, about a decade recovering from Hurricane Ivan. I assume it'll be very similar for Hurricane Sally. Mm. One of our local um, officials who's actually running for city council, a black woman, she coined the term uh, pandemicane for what we face uh, right now, the, the dual reality of a pandemic and a hurricane, and also, of course, the looming reality and the ever-present reality of systemic racism in all of our infrastructures and systems. That includes our healthcare system, economics, education, all of which are deeply, deeply affected by these two realities. So pray for us. Uh, So much I could say and so much to unpack, but the collective trauma is real, and uh, we need the prayers of the saints, and uh, we need your support. So if there's a way that we can you know, put that out there, we will do that um, on our channels just to support the specifically the people of Wedgwood and the African-American communities in our city. Man, thank you for that recap. And please do keep us posted because I know a lot of our listeners are eager to help you in particular because you've been such a voice and such a help to them in many ways. And I'm sure they would be eager and happy because we just got some big hearted folks who listen uh, to support Pensacola and specifically Wedgwood and and these areas that are impacted because of systemic racism. We want to help definitely prayers up, but we also want to help materially and tangibly as well. Uh, We appreciate you, brother. You've been going through so much um, just being a pastor, spearheading past the mic uh, helping out with the witness generally, and then, of course, uh, being in the midst of a pandemic like we all are, but then also being literally in the eye of a hurricane. Man, y'all lift lift up this brother. Uh, he, he, he keeps on going, and he's resilient, but um, we need support. He needs support in these times, but appreciate that, man, Keep, keeping us caught up on uh this disaster this tragedy and just know that you're not alone and um and your community is not alone pensacola strong 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I appreciate that, man. Um, I will say for those who are just kind of have an open idea of like, well, you know, do you need anything? Is there any way we can support you? Personally, we're we're good. Um, and we really appreciate that support. But I just want to say what has given me the strength to continue on and to bounce back and the resilience to keep moving is the resilience of our neighborhoods and our communities. We have looked out for one another. We've helped one another. We've cooked meals for one another. People have opened up homes um, with generators um, so that, you know, some of us could take a shower or, you know, we could just sit in the AC for a little bit. Um, It's very difficult with two kids. You know, I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. So um, my wife has been heroic in in keeping them occupied. So I just want to let y'all know, you know, we've been blessed to have, you know, great neighbors and great friends who have encouraged us. But you know, there's some people who are not that blessed or not that fortunate in this season. So I'll definitely keep you updated. And how can we not continue on, man, when we have such important work here at The Witness and Pass the Mic? And I got to let you guys know, I know we've been silent for two weeks for a number of different reasons, but I just got to let you guys know the rest of 2020, we're going to let it all hang out. 2020's <laughs> been picking a fight with us and we're going to fight back. We're going to fight back. You'll see. Why are you laughing? I don't know why you, I don't know why you laughing because you already know, know what it coming. is. They don't even know, they what's don't know coming. what's coming. I can't wait to see the I'm reaction. I'm telling y'all, we not we not holding back 2020. We're going to fight back. Okay? The rest of the year, we know all the forces that we're facing. We're going to fight back. Trust and believe that. Now listen, speaking of fighting back, man, I was Scrolling through Twitter in the midst of trying to regain service and stocking your profile as I often do. And when I stocked your profile on Twitter and was scrolling through, you posted a July 2020 survey from the Barna Institute. Now, the Barna Research Institute, it is known for polling Christians in topics of faith and and justice and the church and so many other things. And I saw that you have posted this particular survey on race and its efficacy and importance within the context of the church. And according to this July 2020 survey, I just got to give a couple of overviews here. When I clicked on it, I was shocked, but also not surprised at the same time. As of the July 2020 survey, practicing Christians, self-identified Christians who say their faith is very important in their lives, very important, and have attended a worship service within the past month. So these are active churchgoers, active, professing Christians are no more likely to acknowledge racial injustice than they were the previous summer. Now let's just do a, let's just do a little recap of all the things. Let's just do a little recap of all the things that have happened just this year in 2020. Okay. Just this year. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Elijah McClain. That, that's just, that's just a few. There's actually way more. There have been national protests, national marches, but yet they are no more likely to acknowledge racial injustice than they were the previous summer. Now, let me continue. There is actually a significant increase in the percentage of practicing Christians who say race is, quote unquote, not at all a problem in the U.S. 19% up from 11% Mm. in 2019. Now, once again, let me just recap what's happened in 2020. Okay, just real quick. Just a real quick recap. Ahmaud Arbery, (laughs) Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Elijah McClay. Just a little recap. Okay, not even everybody. Just a little recap. 
Let me continue on. Like in 2019, black adults remain much more likely than their white peers to say the country has a race problem. And this sentiment is even stronger among self-identified Christians. Mm. To best look at the intersection of faith and race and ethnicity, this release will report most on self-identified Christians among a nationally representative sample. Okay, very important. Now, let me read one more section, then we'll kick it to Jamar. There is, however, a boost in Christians' willingness to strongly agree that historically the U.S. has oppressed minorities. (laughs) From 19% in 2019 survey to 26% in the summer of 2020. Great. So 7% more people are willing to say at one point or another, the U.S. has (laughs) oppressed minorities. Now, this is of no threat to them because they did. Or they in the past. It doesn't mean anything to them. But hey, this is is what they say. Okay, so apparently this is something we should be excited about. I don't know about that. As this increased knowledge of past injustice does not correspond with increased acknowledgement of present injustice, it might indicate that either more people are beginning to gain education and understanding of U.S. racial history or that more people are beginning to regard racial oppression as an issue we've moved beyond. Now, hold up. But it says it goes from 19% to 26%. That ain't a lot of, that's not a lot of jump. That's not a 17% jump. That's not a 70% jump. That's a 7% jump. So more education got a 7% of people willing to at least acknowledge that at one point or another, the U.S. has oppressed minorities. Let me read one more section. I promise you then I'm done. Motivation to address racial injustice has declined in the past year. Witten Barna asks, how motivated are you? <laughs> I love that word. How motivated are you to address racial injustice in our society? We see numbers moving out from the middle toward being less motivated. In 2019, one in five U.S. adults was unmotivated, 11%, or not motivated at all, 9%. Just a year later, in the summer of 2020, that percentage has increased to 28%. unmotivated, 16% not at all motivated. Hmm. Meanwhile, the number of those who are somewhat motivated has shrunk, and the number of those who are motivated has held fairly steady over the past year, indicating some of those who might have previously been on the fence about addressing racial injustice have become more firmly opposed to engaging. Now, again, this is comparing 2019 to 2020, and let me just one more time give you a recap of 2020, okay? Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Elijah McClain. That's just a few. That's just five, y'all. Jamar, I got to tell you, man. (laughs) I got (laughs) to tell you. (laughs) Oh, this is trauma laughter. This Mm. is trauma laughter. I got to tell you, brother. This put me on edge. And it put me on edge, not because I'm surprised about the racial mix. There's some more stuff we can talk about a little bit later about the differences between white Christians and black Christians. Some more stuff we can talk about later, the difference between black Christians and overall black people who don't profess faith within the context of the U.S. But I was upset because I'm asking myself, what have all the conversations been for? Hmm. What has all the past seven to eight years of talking and crying and foot washing and hand holding <laughs> and kumbaya singing and we shall overcome marching been for. If more people are going to be less motivated, 
and more people are going to be firmly opposed to engaging. We got to talk about this, y'all. And here's where we're coming from, so you guys know. We're coming from this from a Black Christian perspective, speaking to Black Christians. Hmm. Okay. Because we have spent years devoted to the experiment, the study, the progress report, the work of quote unquote racial reconciliation slash racial justice. It, we got to use all these qualifiers because it means different things to different people. And what I'm trying to come up with is why are we still doing that? <laughs> What's the point? What's the point of doing it if all it's going to get is more people who are firmly opposed to engaging? Or have we been doing it wrong? Jamar, you got to jump in here because I got to tell you, man, reading this out loud. Now, reading it is one thing. Reading it out loud. It's got me. It's got me on one, brother. It's, it's got me on one. Blame Hurricane Sally. <laughs> Blame the global pandemic. But I'm a, I'm a little on one, Jamar. And, and I think we need to address this from a black Christian perspective, talking to black Christians. But hop in here. When you read this. You had some tweets about it. You had some mm -hmm. reflections about it. Mm -hmm. What did you come to the conclusion of based upon these numbers? Bottom line is that the numbers don't dissuade me. These numbers are not encouraging when it comes to white folks, for sure. But this is what, what I wrote in response to that. I said, there's a lot to unpack in this data. But my top line observation is this. If racial justice was about popularity, we'd never see change. Progress has always come from a small but committed group of people. Never let the numbers crush your conviction. Now that comes from a place. That 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 comes from a place. I love data, so I appreciate this this poll, right? But a couple of things. Number one, in 1966, Martin Luther King Jr.'s public approval rating was 28%. 28. Talk about it. Talk about it. And that was 66. He's killed in 68. So he still had some, some, some juice left. It really tanked when he started speaking out against the Vietnam War and people were accusing him of being unpatriotic, but he, he was never popular. And, and, and understand King is just a proxy for the entire movement, right? He was the most obvious figurehead. And so the entire civil rights movement, despite the sort of rose-colored lenses with which we look back on it now, was never that popular. And even among black churches, because it was so risky, it was never even a majority of black churches that participated or black Christians, right? What did and they so say, that, about 13%? Yeah, yeah, like low numbers, low numbers that were, that were involved in direct action. Uh, because even if you had a meeting at your church, that could be cause for reprisal. Now, uh, looking back at that, looking at, at other waves of the black freedom struggle, it's never been popular. It's never been popular. Okay, so that's one point. But there's another point here. What, uh, there's an increase, right? We're not just saying this movement is unpopular, but this poll is showing there's an increase in the people who are recalcitrant, the people who are digging in their heels and saying that race is not a problem today, or they feel unmotivated to do anything about it. Well, what about that part? Here, here's my take. I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it. We are in a season when people are being forced to declare themselves. There have been eras past in just the past couple of years when you could kind of hide it. You could be subtle 
about where you stood on issues of racial justice. You could even be within the same church and have people uh, on vastly different spectrums. But for a variety of reasons, from the pandemic to the past four years now of this presidential administration to you name any any number of factors, right? People are being forced to declare themselves. So I'm wondering if this polling data is just that, not people coming up with new beliefs, maybe not even people further becoming entrenched in their beliefs, but people finally honestly declaring their beliefs. We're just in an era where you have to take sides. And I've always said this, justice takes sides. And so my burden as a black Christian is that we would not miss this moment that we would not be playing both sides, that we would not be uh, uh, creating these false equivalencies. And so people declare. And this is one of the things about living in the South. You know this, Tyler, right? There's racism all over the country, right? But but people always say about the South, well, at least we know where people stand. Mm-hmm. They're upfront about it. And mm-hmm. guess what? Yep. Now, nationally, people are upfront about it. You know where folks are standing. And so my bottom line is this, you know, Okay, let me read you this one quote. This is from Robert P. Jones' book, White Too Long. Robert P. Jones is the head of uh, Public uh, Research, Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and his latest book is called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And he wrote this, which was stark and startling if you really ponder it. He said, quote, mm-hmm. the more racist attitudes a person holds the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. Listen again. The more racist attitudes Mm. a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. Isn't that something? So, so, So people with the strongest racist beliefs and convictions, they're more likely to identify as white Christians. I'm sorry, this is based on other polls and other data, right? This is not just somebody's mad and talking about it. This is this is what the polling data says, which this Barna report backs up. So there is something theologically about the way Christianity is melded with whiteness and nationalism into this toxic mix- mixture that makes racism popular in these circles. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. You know, one of the things that I think is so important for us to remember is this data can be taken a number of different ways based upon the frame that you approach it. So if the frame that you approach it depends upon white people and white Christians to co-sign a movement, 
to cosign our actions, to cosign our thoughts, to cosign our dignity, hmm. then there's a lot of reason for us to be discouraged by these numbers. However, if our perspective is rooted in us affirming our own dignity, us building hmm. our own tables, us encouraging our own selves, us uplifting one another without a cosign, then perhaps these numbers shouldn't move us to do one thing or the other. These numbers should actually show us that, as you said, Jamar, people are being forced to pick a side. But beyond this, I want to take it a step further. I need people to hear and understand that as we think about this grand idea of convincing white Christians <laughs> and convincing white evangelicals, Speak understand on. this, blood isn't even enough. Videos of blood aren't enough. Education mm. isn't enough. Mm. All of the right facts and figures said the right way is not enough. Because it was never about simply information. It was never about us sharing our experiences. Hear me and hear me clearly, Black Christians. White supremacy is a stronghold. It is a stronghold that the country has not repented of, and it is a stronghold that the church has not repented of. And because of that, all the right education and experience and video evidence will not change their minds. Because it's not about changing minds. It's about reviving dead hearts. Mm -hmm. That's a work of the Spirit. There it is. Yes. So I need people to hear this. If you are being discouraged and on this roller coaster of who approves you, who co-signs you, who encourages you, who says that you're legitimate, who gives you a stamp of approval, it is a waste of your time, energy, and effort. Spend your time, energy, and effort encouraging yourself and your people and building and extending the tables where we can sit at and control the menu. Stop trying to sit at tables where people are questioning and considering and waffling and maybe might possibly could with your dignity. Stop mm -hmm. it. It's a stronghold. <laughs> it is a stronghold. This kind comes out it only by prayer and fasting. Come on. That's it. And I just need people to hear this because it is so important for us to recalibrate what we think about progress. And it's interesting when we think about progress and and how we how we qualify how we quantify it uh, we were talking recently uh just just this uh past a couple of couple of hours ago Jamar about this article that you read um, from one of our favorite comedians Chris Rock and he was talking about this context of progress and there was a quote that you sent me that I want you to read because I think this quote is really poignant to the idea of what progress is to black americans generally and then also to black christians specifically yeah so chris rock came out with a couple of articles he actually got trending on Twitter because, I mean, we know that comedians You've been working out. Let's just be let, look. You've been working out. Let's just be honest. That's why that brother was trending on trending on Twitter. He oh, been you, 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 you talk about the uh, the photo shoot he had. I'm like that he brother. Did, that's why he was trending. Fifty plus. I'm like, okay, best days are ahead. Come on, Chris. Come on, the Rock. Come on, we Come gotta on. bounce back, Jamar. We gotta bounce back. Shoot, look, no more dad bod for for Chris Rock here. But he was also on one because he 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 was giving his interpretation 
of the times that we're in. He was talking about politics. He was talking about Democrats and Republicans. He was also talking about the supposed progress that we've seen in this racial justice moment. And here's what he said. He said, it's the Jackie Robinson thing. It's written like he broke a barrier, as if there weren't black people that could pl- that could play before him. And that's how white people have learned about racism. They think when these people work hard enough, they'll be like Jackie. And the real narrative should be that these people, the black people, are being abused by a group of people that are mentally handicapped. And we're trying to get them past their mental handicaps to see that all people are equal. Rock continued, humanity isn't progress. It's only progress for the person that's taking your humanity. If a woman's in an abusive relationship and her husband stops beating her, you wouldn't say that she's made progress, right? But that's what we do with black people. We're constantly told that we are making progress. The relationship we're in, the arranged marriage that we're in, it's that we're getting beat less. Wow. So, yeah, that quote made the rounds. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what Chris Rock is saying here is in our in the ways that, that we interpret progress, we act as if black people are the ones making advances when the reality is we've always been great. We've always had the potential to do amazing things. We've always had talent. There have been other Jackie Robinsons who didn't get the chance that Jackie Robinson got, but they were just as talented, just as skilled, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think what Chris Rock is is trying to push back against is like, you don't recognize the brilliance of black people. In in Christian terms, we would say, you don't, you're not recognizing the image of God in black people that makes us have equal value, equal worth, equal potential as anyone else, right? And then you just celebrate that that exceptional Negro who 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 gets a foot in the door uh, as if that was the first one. And because they achieved this level of success or skill or whatever, they are now worthy. And what Rock is saying is like, no, there are lots of other people who are worthy. It's just this one got in, right? So, but I had to marinate on that. I had to really think on that because the way- There's a lot to marinate yes. on that. There's a lot to marinate about that quote. Here's, here's what got me though, is the way that quote is being deployed. So the way I saw people quoting it and retweeting it was basically to say that nothing has changed. This time, these protests and uprisings that we've seen in 2020, all the efforts that we've seen since 2014 in Black Lives Matter, none of that has made a difference. It's the same old, same old. And that kind of stuck with me. That that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, actually. Um, I think it gets back to this conversation we were just having, right, about progress. Whether white Christians, as we were talking about before, realize it or not, racism is a problem. I think in a similar vein, whether we have achieved everything we want, there has been change. There has been progress. I know you what you're going to say, Tyler, and be like, who, what, when, where, show me the receipts. I got you. But here's the thing. I, I didn't say nothing. I, I didn't say anything. I'm on mute. I, know I didn't say coming. anything. Yeah. You can't see my face. I didn't say anything. Just do your thing, man. Cook. I'm letting you no, cook. I know, the read, I know the listeners are saying, show me, show me the receipts. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. We have to reevaluate how we measure progress. I'm now saying 
don't measure it externally. I'm not saying don't measure it in laws passed in systems changed. I'm not saying cut that out. I'm saying expand it. And especially from a Christian point of view, one of the things that I had to really marinate on as I was writing this next book, How to Fight Racism, is what does success look like? What does progress look like? And if we only measure it by these external factors, then we have no reason to keep going because the forces of evil, the forces of darkness, the stronghold, like you said, those are always going to be there to push back. And in fact, the more progress we make or the harder we push for progress, the harder those forces are going to push back. So we're always going to see an increase in resistance. We're always going to see a, a, a resurgence of recalcitrance in those instances. But if that's not the only way we measure progress, maybe part of it is not just what we do to the world, but but the way this journey, the way this struggle actually changes us. Maybe it's not all external. Maybe progress is also measured internally. And, and, and then back to the popularity piece. Maybe it's not that this wave of protest continues to have hundreds of thousands of people in dozens and dozens of cities around, but maybe there's a remnant. Maybe there's a group of people who have been so catalyzed by this moment that we're in that they're never going to go back to the way things were. And it's that group of people, a small group, but a scrappy group of people that makes a difference. So I'm not convinced. Here's the thing. Here's the bottom line. I think we have to be sophisticated enough in our analysis of racial justice that we find ways to acknowledge that we're not there yet, that we haven't achieved everything we want, that we've seen some cultural and symbolic changes, but there are some systemic and structural changes that we are still pushing for, while simultaneously acknowledging that where we are now is not where we were before. The, the, the recently deceased John Lewis uh, uh, put out on social media a year or two ago, he said, uh, for those people who think things haven't changed, walk a mile in my shoes. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That's what I think we need yeah. to keep in mind. You know, I, I don't have a lot of great pushback to that. You know, I don't, I'm not here to refute what you're saying. I think it is difficult for people to hear that the progress that we have achieved or the, the progress that John Lewis would argue we've experienced is sufficient and is enough to reach all Black people, right? And so I think what Rock is saying, you know, which that quote is a little problematic in some areas, so I'm just kind of like navigating around some of it. I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> I'm careful with with some of the language that he used uh, because I think some of it, while poignant in his analogy, might be a little problematic in its delivery. But I do believe that what Rock is trying to say is that we for so long have looked to other people. It's the conversation we had recently about uh, liberation versus validation. We for so long have looked to other people to validate us. We for so long have looked to other people to establish us. We for so long have looked to other people to tell us and to gauge how much progress we've made based upon the majority culture, based upon their approval, based upon what they say, based upon what they do, how they react, that I do think it is right for us to recalibrate what success looks like. I think of this James Cone quote 
that when he was talking about the state of Black America one year um, at this massive forum, he said, when we think about success, Jesus's ministry wasn't successful according to the world standards. It ended in death, but he rose, right? It ended in crucifixion All to right, some preacher. people, yes. but he rose, right? Like so, so just because it looks like it's not successful according to other people's standards and ideas, it doesn't mean that we're not making the necessary progress according to the mission that God has given to us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the mission that God gives to us right now? And what is the mission that we have received from God in this moment? And I've been saying at The Witness, I think it's two key things here. If we're going to judge and gauge progress, we need to judge and gauge progress by the amount of proclaiming and reclaiming that we do. By the amount of truth and experience and honesty that we proclaim from our mouths without fear of resistance, without needing a cosign, without needing people to pat us on the back, and the amount of reclaiming that we do, which is reclaiming our time, our identity, our dignity, our worth, and also our legacy as well, which is most important, which is the way in which we spend our time and the work that we do in this present moment. Mm. So I've been trying to talk through this idea on the team of proclaiming, reclaiming. What does it mean to proclaim? We proclaim the truth as witnesses, right? Go and be my witnesses. That's what Jesus says. We proclaim the truth as witnesses of his reality and his finished work, but we also proclaim the truth of our unique experience, our unique social location as black Christians, but we also reclaim as well. We reclaim our time. Uh, Henry Mitchell says that black preaching and the black church service after preaching the gospel, the, the, the sole goal and the, the most important goal is the reclamation of the black identity. Wow. So we reclaim our identity. We reclaim our personhood. We reclaim our somebodiness. So I think we judge it not necessarily by how the majority culture views us, because that's a faulty view of success, but we judge it more so by the amount of proclaiming and reclaiming that we do. We judge it by the amount of self-actualization we come into of understanding our mission and what God has called us to do and our dignity and how he's created us. So a a poll can't judge that. And that's the faultiness and the limitation of polls. But here's what can judge that, I believe. I believe we can judge that by the amount of creation and the amount of realization that we do in this moment. How, How do we judge progress? Not by what a poll says about ethereal people we don't know. We judge progress based upon what are we creating for our children and what are we creating for the people in proximity to us and what are we creating in the organizations that God has blessed us to start and lead. So I think we judge it, engage it based upon the amount of work we're doing, because as far as we go, that gives people the starting point to take the baton further than where we could take it. I think what gives John Lewis, what gave John Lewis the encouragement to say we've made progress is he looked around at us. And he said that there were other people, not literally you and me, but that there were other people who were willing to take up the baton and go the next mile. Hmm. I walked my road. Now there are other people who need to march in that same road in places I can't go. So I think he looked around and gained encouragement from this current moment. And so he looked at it, looked at it not from a standpoint of laws necessarily, not from a standpoint of approval, not from a standpoint of white applause and celebration, not from an approval poll. But he looked at it from the standpoint of each other. And this is the difference between the individual and the communal. When we see a poll, we're thinking individually. These white people don't get it. 
But when we see each other, we see our community. Hmm. We see us. <laughs> we see the family. We see something that transcends the individuality and the autonomy of the American system. We see a collective and the power of the collective, which is why we have a collective, y'all. The power of the collective is we gauge progress within ourselves, not from the outside looking in. So I think it's important for us to recalibrate what progress and what success looks like, but it's not going to come. Our encouragement and our gauge isn't going to come from an opinion poll. It's only going to rile us up and it's only going to make us confirm what we already knew, which is that it's not about the information. It's not about the blood. It's not about the experience. It's not about any of that. It's not about the conversations. It's about what do we think about ourselves? And that's why I was encouraging to see that when they said, do you think our country has a race problem? The black response and the black Christian <laughs> response increased. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that was encouraging. No, yep. it increased. It was the only, I think it was the only category where it increased. The only ethnic group that actually increased. I was just about so to go back to that. So we know it about yep. ourselves. And if we know it about ourselves, it doesn't matter what they know. Yes, we want to restrain them. Yes, we want to set up systems and you know cultural policies and laws and and you know legal restrictions to restrain them, as King would say. But we recognize that what we think about ourselves matters profoundly. When you think about seventy five percent of Black Christians in twenty nineteen moving to eighty one percent of Black Christians in twenty twenty, that's success. <laughs> that's what success looks like mm. because that is us that's coming into ourselves. an understanding that now we are not going to deny, we are not going to look the other way at what is plainly evident to us. That's success. That's what progress is. We got to recalibrate that. So I was just going to go back to that Barna study because in that little tweet thread I did, I was like, you know, the white responses are, are, <sighs> deflating, but certainly not surprising. But I was more interested in the Black responses. And so there was one question that said, motivation to address racial justice. And among Black Christians in 2019, it was 63%. In 2020, it was 70%. But listen to this. They broke that down into motivated and very motivated. In 2019, it was 33% that were very motivated. In 2020, it's 46% that are very motivated. And then it said, uh, uh, who was more likely to say that the country has a race problem and it showed black people as a whole and then black Christians. And I don't want to pit us against each other, but I just thought it was interesting. Black people as a whole, 76% say that the country has a race problem, but 81% of black Christians said there was a race problem which is interesting on a number of levels, not least of which is that the, the, the dynamic between race and Christianity among black people seems to be the opposite of what it is among white people, that the, that the, that the more serious we are about our Christian faith, the more clearly we see that there is, in fact, a race problem in this country. And so that's, I just thought that was very interesting, again, recalibrating what, how this is affecting us in our self-conception and our recovery of the image of God and the likeness of God in black people, all of that's part and parcel. And I want to say just one more thing. Our dedication to a cause shouldn't hinge on the popularity of the cause, nor even ultimately the success of the cause. If, if we're talking about it, right? Like you said, according to the world yeah, standards. What does it matter? 
Right. <laughs> because because at the end of the day, is is it right? Is is the important question. Is this it won't change anything. This poll will not change the truth. Right, right. Like, is it, is it, are we on God's side? That's what matters. And if we are, then we don't know what God will choose to do. Perhaps he'll choose to bring about the changes that we're working for when we pray for that end and we work with all our might for that to happen. But at the end of the day, we're doing what's right. We're in a righteous cause fighting for racial justice. And so we can't just let these external factors determine our dedication to the cause. We, we, we're dedicated to it, not because it works, but because it's right. That's it, man. That's all we wanted to tell y'all. We want to encourage you guys, do the, do the hard work of proclaiming and reclaiming. Man, keep your eyes on the prize, as the old song says, and hold, hold on. on. <laughs> That's the only thing that matters. Keep your mm. eyes on the prize. Mm. Hold on. Don't look to the left or to the right, but keep doing the work. Proclaim and reclaim for yourself and recalibrate what success and progress looks like. And at the end of our lives, we'll be able to say we gave everything we had and we did everything we could do and we set some people free. And by God's grace, that's the most important thing we can do. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.